0: This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, Geraldine Dude, with you, and a big welcome to Extra. It's just lovely to have you company each Monday. I will flag something for next week because I'd like your thoughts if you care to offer them. Um, This week, we've seen the Commonwealth Bank move to offer its 6.5 million app users access to crypto, cryptocurrencies. It's the first Australian bank to do so and one of only a handful of banks worldwide. And we've also watched local investors tip money into the first crypto ETF launched on the ASX in a record-breaking launch. It's certainly been a big week for cryptocurrencies. I don't know about you, but I don't think I understand them. Uh, And I've been holding off doing something on it, but we're going to have a bit of a deep dive next week. So if you have questions or story ideas or your own anecdotes of wins and losses... I suspect there are quite a lot of losses too. Uh, We're going to cover that in next week's program. So that's all uh, to come here on Saturday Extra. But first, the mood of France. Well, it's been a big week for Scott Morrison, whose appearance at COP26 was largely overshadowed by the ongoing fallout with France over scrapped submarines. It may well have been an even bigger week for the French leader, Emmanuel Macron. Not only was he forced to deal with the leaked text message revealing he did have some prior warning of troubles with the French-Australian subdeal, but during COP26 he was dealing with an increasing spat with the UK over fishing boat licences amidst increasingly strident post-Brexit language. His Secretary of State suggesting, for instance, that London's participation in AUKUS signalled a, "quotes". Return to the American fold and a form of accepted vassalization. Rather than some glorious global Britain story. And there's more in what appears to be a deteriorating mood in France. The BBC's Paris correspondent recently described a generalised pessimism about the state of France, which of course does erupt from time to time. So, for an audit of how the French are seeing their own culture and country these days, I'm pleased to welcome back Sophie Petter, the Paris Bureau Chief with The Economist. Welcome to the programme, Sophie.
1: Thanks very much for inviting me, Geraldine. The Guardian,
0: as said in a recent editorial, it's difficult to, not to conclude that the cultural politics of France are drifting in an alarmingly illiberal direction. Now, would you agree with this comment? And if so, why? What's behind this shift?
1: Well, I think what we're looking at is a sort of very volatile political situation, six months ahead of a presidential election. Uh, Next April, uh, Emmanuel Macron is up for re-election. And whenever that period arises in France, it is always a moment of sort of maximum polarisation as candidates sort of jostle to uh, take position and in a sense exaggerate hype, sort of whip up those feelings of division and uh, you know, disaffection that often happens uh, at this time. And I think that this is what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of, um, you know, there are, there are anxieties in France, like in everywhere in the world at the moment, uh, you know, coming out of the pandemic, uh Times have been difficult. There's a lot of anxiety about what's happening to the world, what's happening to France. There have been, as you said, you know, real c- problems or questions, at least about what France's place in the world is, um, you know, in the anglophone-, anglophone sphere in particular. But all those anxieties, you know, there are, there are two ways for, for politicians to deal with them. One of them is to sort of try and calm them and, and reassure the French and, and give them a sense of sort of positive uh, vision of the future. And the other is to, is to exaggerate and sort of stir up those fears. And that's what we're seeing on the far right, mm. on the right, um, and arguably on the, on the left of French politics as well. And I think that that's part of this sort of particular sense of cultural anxiety right now in France.
0: Yes, I mean, Michel Welbeck, you know, who writes in a particularly grim fashion about his own country, uh, wrote recently, there is in France a vague and widespread ambiance of self-flagellation, something that hangs in the air like a gas. Um, it, so that's how you'd put it, would you? That, is, it, is it because of um, disappointment with Macron? They don't know where they stand with him or what?
1: Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, I personally have this theory, and I call it bleak chic. I think the French enjoy <laughs> sort of wallowing in 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 various I mean, think of how many terms there are for disaffection in France. There's sort of ennui, there's malaise, there's there's melancholy. There are all these terms that are used all the time by the French to describe this sort of sense of, of disaffection and and and. Uh, you know, just discontent in general, and it's you know it, there are all sorts of reasons that one could search for that. You know, maybe it's because they're a sort of idealistic nation, maybe it's because they're a very critical nation. They're taught all the kids in school are taught to sort of be be critical of everything, and they mean critical in the sense of of, of having that um, ability to to debate and have a sort of rhetorical ability to to express criticism. But I think it it does sort of spill over into the way in which subjects are debated and the way in which the French are. Having said that, I do think that there's something uh, that happens, you know, in the political debate at, 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 at particular times, which, which makes that worse, which sort of exacerbates that. And, you know, I think that's probably what Welbeck was talking about. He, 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 he uh, you know, he, he trades and writes about all of these issues. That is exactly his subject. And so mm, it suits mm, him to suggest the French stick. are always like that absolutely well, but i, I think mean, you know it's the political it's the political ambiance that makes it so uh, uh intense at the moment well the former far so right so go on no, I was just going to say. I mean, just to answer your question about Macron, I mean, it's interesting because he is not that unpopular in the polls. Yes, he is. Uh, you know, he doesn't have a, a majority. Of the French don't approve of him in the polls, but he his his approval rating, which is around somewhere in the sort of forty percent, is significantly better than the two previous presidents. That's uh, Francois Hollande, the Socialist, and Nicolas Sarkozy, the uh, centre right president were at this point 6 months ahead of a presidential election so i think you know one has to sort of put that in context
0: what about this far right former far right journalist eric zamour who's expected to soon announce that he'll run in the presidential election he's not expected to win but he's sort of cast as some form of trumpian figure is he putting macron under pressure
1: well, it's very interesting what's happening because this is a journalist. You know, he's a commentator. He's written lots of books. He's thought of as a sort of polemicist. He likes, again, to sort of dwell on this concept that France is in, 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 in terminal decline. Um, and he's written books over the years. They're always bestseller. He's, he's come out with a, a latest one called France Hasn't Said Its Last Word. Now, Eric Zemmour, as far as most people thought of him, was a, a TV personality. And over the last couple of months, from nowhere, he's suddenly become, he hasn't declared himself a presidential candidate, but he's clearly preparing a campaign. And in the polls, he has surged. Now, he's surged so far that he's actually the person he's really threatened, is Marine Le Pen on the far right, who used to Mm -hmm. occupy that space with a sense of sort of impunity. And now she, in the polls, has, the more he's risen, the more she's fallen. And there seems to be a kind of zero-sum game between the two of them. So the question really is, you know, is he, he's a, he's, he is a threat to Marine Le Pen. Is he a threat to Emmanuel Macron at the moment? All polls suggest that once there's a second round runoff in France because it's a two-round election, all polls suggest that in that second round, Emmanuel Macron would still win, even against Derek Zemmour. But... I would add, you know, we are six months ahead and as as anyone will remember from 2016, which was six months ahead of the, of the last presidential election that Emmanuel Macron won, polls didn't suggest he would and therefore I think we're all very cautious right now of reading too mm. much uh, or being at all complacent about what would happen next April.
0: I suppose we've been wondering here with all the sort of hoo-ha whether he is feeling under pressure and whether that all contributed, you know, to to what occurred.
1: You know, I don't think that there is any sense of complacency around Emmanuel Macron. You talk to people in his team and they are very aware that this is going to be a tough election. Uh, even if polls suggest he is going to, that he is the favourite, that doesn't mean that he is going to, that he's taking this for granted at all. He more than anyone knows how fast things can move during during an election campaign. Um, And I think there is a sense of, you know, taking very seriously the threats all over the place because it's extremely fluid at the moment in France. We don't actually know who is going to be the candidate, even on the centre-right, you know, the main Republican candidate. And once we know that, there'll be a bit bit of a better sense of, of, of how this is going. But yes, I mean, There's no doubt that Emmanuel Macron is under pressure and, and he will be all the way through right up to polling day.
0: Yes, I mean, just there's a you know several things that have really hit us, I suppose, in Australia. If you bother to look, there's those two extraordinary interventions of the generals earlier this year saying that the republic was in danger. You've got um, Macron himself talking about uh, creeping racial and identity politics risking the fracturing of foundations of French society, and you've got another sort of very interesting uh, observation that people have made is that the French really into these conspiracy theories in a big way that just doesn't, well, it's a surprise, I think, that the French seem to be, um, I don't know, what does that indicate to you?
1: I think it indicates probably the same phenomenon you see in the United States or in the UK, for that matter, at the moment. That's a sense of, you know, that societies are changing very fast. Technologies are sort of accelerating at a, an exponential rate, and there's a sense that of not knowing quite what that means for our for our societies. And people aren't, I don't think, feeling reassured. The pandemic has has contributed to that as well. And it's, you know, th- there's an anti-vax movement in France um, that feeds off that. Don't forget that it was only but a couple of in years Germany, we, in Germany the. Germans aren't in this state, really? No. Nope. No, that's true. But Germany. Germany is a peculiarly stable society. Just think back to the Gilets Jaunes. Do you remember that? That was the Yellow Jacket protest mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that took place in France, where they were occupying roundabouts. There is, you know, France has a has a rebellious history. It has a, as we know, I mean, you don't know, need to go back to the Revolution to think about that. Mm-hmm. You can think about 1968. You can think about the Gilets cool. Jaunes, the, the Yellow Jackets. I mean, that's all part of, I think, the French way of expressing things. It is a society. It's extremely difficult to preside over a society like this you know, just because the French elected Emmanuel Macron didn't mean that they all became sort of reasonable and uh, <laughs> and sort of cal- calm society, you know, even if that's the way he is most of the time. So, you know, I think there is that in the French character and the, in French history and for the way for French are, there is a kind of violence, of rebellion that comes out from time to time. And therefore that and a sense of distrust towards politicians which means that things like conspiracy theories uh there was a professor down in a health professor down in marseille who had convinced the french that they could be treated with this um uh, hydroxychloroquine which was what donald trump once wanted to treat um covid19 with you know there are people who are willing to believe all of that and that's always been the case and i i i, I really do think that there are moments when that ex- emerges and then moments when it when it when it calms down mm-hmm. having said all that geraldine i would just add if you look at polls which ask people right now what are the subjects of conversation in your household over the past week at the top of the list it's very mundane things it's the price of gas the price of petrol it's it's you know jobs it's the cost of filling up my trolley in the supermarket that's what people are actually worried about so I think you know one has to take a little bit of a step back and say, you know, France isn't in a state of complete and utter turmoil. You know, there is a lot of uh, perfectly sort of ordinary daily life going on at the same time. But we are at a moment, I think, of some of self-doubt, I think, and and, and that's all pre-electoral.
0: Which I suppose has made people here wonder about the whole um, fuss over the AUKUS deal whether it does signal Britain's move toward America away from Europe and whether it has Europeans both angry and a little bit um, rattled by this, let alone the feud taking place over fishing boats and rights in the waters between France and Britain. I mean, is this all playing into it? A sort of general, dare I say, ennui <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, yes, I do think that's the case. I mean, I think that was the fear the minute that uh, Brexit took place, the Brexit vote in two thousand sixteen, was that Britain was going to sort of return to its comfort zone, its sort of natural uh, reflexes, which is to turn to the to the United States and and to to the sort of alliances that it builds in the Anglophone world, and 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 therefore that there was a potential of. Uh, of as a as a result of that disengagement with europe there was a potential for some kind of you know friction and tensions with the rest of of europe with the european union and that's what we've seen it's um i think that it is a sense of concern for the french sometimes bitterness sometimes you know, regret. um, And, you know, for those who believe passionately in the European Union and Emmanuel Macron, don't forget, you know, he was one of those politicians who got uh, people waved the European Union flag, the one with the gold stars at his rallies. You know, this was very Mm -hmm. unusual to see in France. And he really has been sort of passionate about building up the European Union for him to see uh, that, you know, his geographical, you know very close neighbor just on the other side of the channel turning its back on the european union has been bruising and it's been particularly bruising when it when it you know through through all the, the events that you've mentioned which have have just sort of broken down trust really between france um france and a lot of the anglophone world
0: I wonder whether, in fact, with Angela Merkel exiting politics, um, whether it does actually place quite a lot more on the shoulders of Emmanuel Macron, which he might have welcomed. In fact, he looked as though he did, but I suppose it is a burden in its own way, too
1: probably both i mean it's an interesting question we've had uh, emmanuel macron hosted a goodbye dinner for angela merkel and her husband in uh, burgundy and treated them to some fine wines and uh, really i think laid on a, a very special moment for her uh, as a tribute to to to, the, to those years in which she's led germany and in effect europe um and i suspect you know emmanuel macron's rather relishing the idea that he he, he becomes something of the veteran now you know he's mm. the new, he was the new boy elected at the age of 39 and now here he is, um, you know, looking a little bit more like the experienced leader. And I think he, he probably relishes that. But it's also a responsibility and, I, you know, he doesn't have the experience or the, the kind of long view that that uh, Merkel had. And the European Union is a difficult place to, to manage at the moment. I think, you know, if you if you're sitting here, you feel very much surrounded by a lot of instability, uh, Russia, Turkey, you know, Eastern Mediterranean issues all over the place, not to mention the ones that we shouldn't be having with with the uk um and i think that that is that makes it a, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult moment and he, he will step up but i think it's uh, going to be difficult for him to to do that uh, especially you know without merkel to sort of balance have be, be that kind mm. of you know counterbalancing and and very Solid anchoring rock. power exactly
0: look thank you very much indeed for that little audit of uh, french culture it does uh, sound as if there's rather a lot on your plate i do appreciate it thank you It's
1: always a pleasure to
0: talk to you. Thanks, Geraldine. Sophie Petter, the Paris Bureau Chief with The Economist, one of our texters, Paula said, I think it was de Gaulle, who said, how can you govern a country that has 230 different cheeses? (laughs) We'll leave you thinking. Well, the great resignation that allegedly is underway are fears overblown. In recent months, there's been a surge in the number of people quitting their jobs in the US, and it's been coined the Great Resignation. It's something that often happens after great upheavals, such as we've seen with the COVID pandemic. Well, now Australian companies and some commentators are becoming increasingly concerned the same might take place here. But according to our next guest, Professor Peter Garn from the Faculty of Business and Economics at the University of Melbourne, we may not have too much to worry about. Alongside his colleague Mark Wooden, he's written an illuminating article for the conversation titled, Australia's Great Resignation is a Myth. We are changing jobs less than ever before. Welcome to Radio National, Peter.
2: Uh, thanks, Geraldine. Happy to be here.
0: So this term, "Great Resignation," just let's talk about that first. Uh, when did it? When was it first coined? Well,
2: it was uh, coined last year by uh, Texas A and M Professor Anthony Klotz, where he was reflecting on what might happen as we move out of the COVID. Uh, sort of pandemic and the recession that, that goes with it, and reflecting on the fact there were there was almost like this perfect storm of two forces that might, might lead to an upsurge in, in quit rates. The first was just the general improvement in economic activity. So, quit rates generally are pro-cyclical. So, as the economy picks up, people begin to look around for different types of job opportunities as, as there is pressure on wages and new openings come up. And they're more likely to quit. Whereas in recessions, uh, we see people hang on to their jobs. And if they if they're they're sort of hit by a by a, a compulsory redundancy or a, or a separation, uh, then they're more likely, in fact, to leave the labour market than uh, than, than would happen in 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 a um, uh, the upswing of the cycle. Uh, so he's got that 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 sort of factor. And then at the at the micro level, uh, we know from research that looks at individual choices that their choices to quit are really governed by two things. So, the first is when there's a shock. So, the shock could be some restructure in a workplace, some sort of change. It could even be uh, the, the offer of an outside job and the extent to which they're also embedded in their own organisations so in which they're part of the network, they feel like they belong and so on. So, he was suggesting that with the COVID pandemic, both of those factors would work in favour of increases in quit rates. As people were exhausted uh, and so on, uh, they were more likely to quit.
0: Yeah, Paul Paul Krugman, the um, um, uh, economist, suggested that there was a new form of worker revolt uh, underway in the wake of substandard conditions. I just detect from you, you're, you're not so sure.
2: Uh, well, I think I think he's got a point there, which is something more unique about the US sort of system where uh, there, there is a much larger proportion of jobs that make up the US labour market that are at or around and even below minimum wage level. So, there are, there are a lot more marginal jobs that make up the total economy. Uh, so, he's reflecting on the fact with, with mm. actually very, very low levels of, of labour market protection, uh, you get those sorts of jobs. And In periods of difficulty, he's suggesting that that basically people are are more willing to withdraw from the labour market than to continue in in low-grade jobs. And the data bear that out in the US sort of context, but they don't really bear it out here for a number of reasons.
0: Well, just before we get here, I mean, that great resignation in the US anyway is only taking place in a handful of sectors, isn't it?
2: Well, that's right. Um, uh, so, and, and if you look at look at sort of the, uh, the, the quit rates by industry, there are really about four or five sectors that really drive it, and most of that are sectors where people are more exposed to COVID. So, part of the context here is the fact they've got lower vaccination rates, and there's a there's a lot more risk for workers in jobs where they're they're facing customers. So, mm. if we look at the data, most of that that increase in quit rates is driven by what's happening in the leisure and hospitality sector. So, like here, that's a very large sector. It generates a lot of jobs. Uh, and people are concerned about going back to work uh, when they might be mixing with a lot of customers, imagine in hospitality, who may not be vaccinated and they're putting themselves at risk. So, I think that's a that's a pretty big factor in that case. But there are many sectors uh, where, in fact, quit rates in the United States are declining. Uh, there's also a state-by-state state variation. So, again... Uh, uh, I haven't done any sort of robust analysis, but just looking at the the simple correlations, uh, there is a clear correlation between quit rates at the state level and vaccination rates. So it appears to be playing into the psychology of people uh, deciding whether they quit or not.
0: Mm. And, And now here, no increase in the quit rate.
2: Well, we've actually had a longer-term decline in in sort of quit rates, and they're sort of at historically sort of low levels, and it may be that that's not necessarily a good thing. Uh, Quit rates sort of play an important function in a dynamic labour market in that it's about reallocating uh, labour uh, across jobs, across sectors to more productive types of activity. Uh, it, it creates better matches between individual workers and job opportunities. So, it's important to have some level, it's a healthy sign to have some level of quit rates in the system. Uh, as they've declined, I suppose, the uh, and the RBA pointed this out, there are concerns that that might be one of the factors that has been driving Australia's uh, historically- low wage growth rate over the last sort of decade. So, it might be that quit rates are too low uh, and it would be useful and helpful if we're able to see an increase in quit rates. I think the interesting thing also about the United States, um, if we look at even since the last release of data on quit rates, there's new data looking at job generation and we're seeing record levels of new jobs being created in the order of half a million dollars, half a million jobs every, every month. Uh, And generally, employers are able to fill their jobs. So even though there are shortages, we're seeing employees able to fill jobs. They're certainly being forced to pay higher wages to be able to do that. Because
0: I thought, sorry to interrupt you, I thought I remembered from last night's ABC News that 40% of jobs were not applied for. Did I mishear that?
2: Um, Well, I'm not sure about that particular sort of data, but the release by the Bureau of Labor Statistics sort of indicates that uh, generally employers are able to fill these, uh, fill the jobs. They're, like I say, they're being forced into a position where, they're, where they're, uh, they have to pay higher wages to be able to attract labour. Which is exactly and what, what the, this, uh, the,
0: the, the governor wants.
2: That's exactly what the governor wants. I mean, and what it's doing in the United States is seeing uh, more people flood back into the paid labour force. So, again, during the pandemic, more so than here by a long shot, Uh, When people lost their jobs, as they did in droves in the United States, they tended to withdraw from the labour market uh, and and look at other activity during that sort of time. What we're seeing now is a flood of people back into the paid labour force as these new job opportunities are opening up. Now, the speed of this recovery is, is actually remarkable. Typically, when we have recessions, if we look at the last couple of recessions in Australia, and I think the evidence in the States would bear this out, to a similar degree, although recoveries tend to be quicker there for different reasons. But in this in, in previous recessions, it takes about sort of six to 10 years for employment rates to get back to where they were uh, prior to a recession event occurring. Now, in this recession, we're seeing that happen at double quick speed. So, of course, it's placing pressure mm-hmm. on the ability, the immediate pressure of, of businesses to find workers to fill jobs. But generally they're able to find workers to fill those jobs. They they look at sort of higher wages, better conditions and other things that are intended to do that. So it feels like a natural part of a process, certainly with some unique features around COVID, but it doesn't feel too extraordinary.
0: Well, interestingly, um, at the that sort of uh, higher up the chain in terms of money level, I noticed there's been anything but a great resignation discussion. Uh, more, I think it was termed, uh, Pip Marlowe, the Salesforce chief executive, uh, said that there really is a great relocation or a great realignment underway, was her judgment, um, that people were actually asking for more more flexible work, career development, and so on. And uh, I noticed in, in the financial review, in terms of talking about young lawyers, that it was law firms in particular, which were sensing that they had to do the step up in or- and they had to do- have much better leadership in order to retain people. So, I mean, it's anything but a story of great, well, if it's great resignation, it's very much, you know, a moving to something else.
2: Well, and and part of this is around uh, particular types of skill shortages. I mean, there are many other things that are happening as a consequence of of the COVID pandemic. And one of them is that we're seeing sort of organisations look at how they restructure work. They're looking at at sort of the introduction of new technology technology. Uh, uh, and a range of other things. And it, and it is driving sort of a trend that was happening before COVID. It's accelerating a trend uh, around uh, sort of a, an upskilling of jobs at the top end of the labour market. And I think as that happens, you're seeing pressure, if you like, on the labour supply side for particular types of uh, types of work and an increase in demand for those same jobs. So it's leading to these types of forces where we're seeing this great reset or this great realignment. I mean, I think the other extraordinary thing about COVID, if we think about uh, working from home prior to COVID, the HILDA data that, uh, that Mark Wooden has been uh, deeply involved with uh, collecting over a long period of time, basically what it shows is that uh, over the last sort of decade, working from home has been something that a minority of people did. I think about 15% of the workforce worked from home. And on average, they worked about five hours a week from home. So it was a relatively small part for a minority of people at work. And that remains stable for a decade. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the pandemic means we've all had an experience of working from home. We've learned how to do it. We can see how it might fit in. Uh, and many or, or organisations have had to make mm. adjustments in the way they organise work. They've learned how to do things. They've invested in new technology and the like. So, in in a sense, the great reset is around looking at hybrid forms of work. Yeah, and that was my, that's changed people's preferences.
0: My final quick question to you. Do you think the hybrid model will lurk in the longer term? I mean, this is the great guesswork that's underway at the moment, isn't it? Can Will workers well, be able to pick and choose?
2: That, well, no, they won't be able to pick and choose. I think we'll see... It is a more common phenomenon to have people work in flexible ways in in hybrid forms. But the reality is to get a lot of work done, you're dependent on others. So, you've got to coordinate your activity. You've got to cooperate with each other. Now, some of that can be done remotely, but a whole range of service provision needs to happen sort of in situ, if you like. Uh, So, there'll need to be some structure around hybrid work. It's not just about flexibility for employees it, there needs to be a high degree of coordination about when we work flexibly uh to enable work groups to to work most productively so i think we'll see an increase but nowhere near as much as we might have thought when we we're going through the uh, everyone working from home experience
0: Look, very interesting. I mean, this is on the top of people's lips I find a lot. Thank you very much indeed for that update.
2: Thank you, Geraldine. Professor Peter Garn
0: from the Faculty of Business and Economics at the University of Melbourne, and his article is in the conversation. Well, up next, the November edition of The Pick. Yes, grab your pens, because now it's time for another instalment of The Pick. Here to give us their recommendations of things we should read, watch and listen to are James Curran, Professor of Modern History at Sydney University and Foreign Affairs columnist for the Financial Review, and Dr Jennifer Su, a Research Fellow in the Public Opinion and Foreign Policy Program at the Lowy Institute. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Uh, Now, let's get straight into what you're reading. James, you've picked an essay by Emmanuel Carrere, which is particularly timely, given our interview with Sophie Petter earlier about France. Tell us more, please.
3: Yeah, that's right. Well, look, this is a a portrait by by one of uh, France's um, most highly regarded journalists. Uh, And it's really about trying to get to grips with what is macronism. It's written very early. Uh, in, in Macron's um, term as French president, uh, it begins by following him around the uh, Caribbean uh, French territory of Saint Martin in 2017 after it suffered a hurricane. And Carrier uh, notes that Macron, despite everyone else uh, sweating around him, simply doesn't sweat. His his shirt is is uh, crisp white the whole day when everyone else is just uh, dripping in perspiration. But um, but look, he's trying to get to grips with what, what on earth is Macronism? How has this individual been able to come through the kind of centre of French politics with chaos on the left and the right, um, get elected over Le Pen? But he's looking um, also at this whole idea of Macron as a philosopher king. You know, this is, this is about, uh, as we know, Macron started off his term saying that he wanted to be like Jupiter. He would have a Jupiterian presidency, which would be unchallenged and sort of detached from all the trivialities. Uh, of governing, so he, he he would be like the Roman god of the skies. But um, but this essay is really sort of saying, well, what what does that mean, and and what's his philosophy, and will he be able to transform France in the way that he wants to?
0: Well, you just must, if you can very much summarise the the, the analysis of the handshake, of the Macron handshake. Well,
3: well, that's right. Yeah, this kind of incredible charm and 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 seduction, uh, you know, where the the, the first the first grip is, is is quite normal and then it gets stronger as he keeps shaking <laughs> the hand
0: while well, the the blue eyes bore into you
3: well that's right and uh, we know that he did that with Trump and it became almost like an arm wrestle i think <laughs> on the champs elysees so um uh, yes can okay, well, uh, sorry
0: we we didn't i don't think we we saw quite <laughs> quite that unfold with our prime minister but it, it it does sound you know very interesting and you alerted me to it you're also reading another essay by the president of the council on foreign relations richard haas a very yep. long-standing commentator which was in the latest issue of uh, foreign affairs titled the mm-hmm. age of america first washington's flawed new foreign policy consensus now i'm really interested to hear what your takeouts were from this essay please
3: Well, this is one of these classic kind of grand pronouncements that come from these eminence gris of American foreign policy, Um, you know, from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, basically, I think he's he's making the obvious point that there's more continuity between this administration and the last. Uh, I think many of us thought that Trump would be the aberration. Perhaps it will be Biden that is the aberration, given the way the Republican Party uh, is going. But Look, when you when you read between the lines here, in many ways I think what Richard Hart is saying, he wants the old America back. He wants he wants he wants to sort of he wants an American that is exceptionalist, um, that believes in its its global destiny that 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 takes up the cudgels again of world leadership. I mean, he excoriates the country for squandering the unipolar moment uh, at the end of the Cold War. Um, believes that washington lacked the ability that it had after world war ii to sort of institutionalize uh for for the world ahead and to lead to lead that to lead that task um so he's looking at all sorts of problems of continuity between biden and trump but i think this is in many ways um a kind of a, a you know when, when he's sort of looking at the similarities between america first of trump and uh and Biden's foreign policy for the middle class—it is a—it is a lament. That's what's going on here. I mean, mm. this is a sort of a letting go of where the kind of that cherished notion of American leadership that he believes is such a stabilising force in the world—he he doesn't know where it's going. Or American and
0: primacy, really.
3: Well, that's exactly right, primacy. Mm-hmm. And 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 you know, I mean, on on China, for example. Um, you know, despite the fact that we know there is such a solid bipartisan consensus in Washington about strategic competition with China. um, He's saying, here, quite interestingly, uh, competing with China is essential, he says, but it cannot provide the organising principle for American foreign policy in an era increasingly defined by global challenges, climate change, pandemics, terrorism, proliferation and online disruption. So, um, mm. He doesn't seem to be suggesting that uh, you know taking on China is going to be the kind of leitmotif of American foreign policy.
0: And look, we should take this opportunity to mention that you have a new book mm. out, just out, which is quite a departure from you. For you, tell us a little, please, about Campisi, the last of the <laughs> dream sellers.
3: Yeah, that's a very, very different sidestep, isn't it, from um, from where <laughs> oh, we've just boom, been? Boom. <laughs> hmm. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> yes. Look, it's a really, it really it's it's a study of. Uh, this particular player. He was, uh, for your listeners, a, a very exciting Australian rugby player in the 1980s and 90s. A hugely unpredictable, real showman of a player um, that, that kind of lived this, uh, lived his rugby life on the high wire, sort of took dramatic chances. Some came off, some didn't. And the book is really a study of his artistry as a player and, and his creative genius and the, and the highs and lows of creative genius. But um, But also how someone who, left school from 16, didn't go to a private school or a university uh, and yet became, you know, probably, I think, the most thrilling player to grace a rugby field for a very long time. So it's trying to understand the impact of him.
0: Ah, you're a broad thinker. Uh, Now, Jennifer, you've (laughs) been listening patiently. You'd like to recommend a book by Peggy Levitt titled Artifacts and Allegiances, How Museums Put the Nation and the World on Display. Again, this... One feels a bit in the zeitgeist. Tell us about it, please.
4: Yeah, so it's a it's a contribution to our understanding of how global politics is refracted through the study of museums, and the book really assessed how museums are adjusting to this um, to well prior to global. To the global pandemic how they adjusted to the global dynamics that's been shaped by sort of really unprecedented rates of migration um, the intensification of this human mobility has really changed our cities and urban centers around the world and we can think you know here in sydney prior to the pandemic and this um, in some ways has resulted in sort of this reimagining and re-articulation and redefinition of um, the nation, identity, class, and culture. So, it, so it talks
0: she, to museum directors, does it?
4: Well, it beyond I think it talks to beyond museum professionals. She mm-hmm. does do um, she does cover um, several case studies in um, Stockholm, Gothenburg, Copenhagen, Brooklyn, New York, Singapore, and Doha, and she un- uh, tries to uncover how museum professionals address this um, tension between the the idea of cosmopolitanism, so putting your city on the uh, on the world stage and this ident- this local identity. So how do museum professionals and um, museum goers um, understand their own city in the face of this uh, intensification really. of human mobility? Hmm. And I think this is a really uh, a timely. Um, this is the time for Australia to think about and our cultural institutions to to start engaging with idea of cosmopolitanism. We well, have that, got
0: that wonderful Museum of Immigration in Melbourne already. Thank you. Yeah, mm.
4: and um, you know the new Museum of Chinese Australian History that's going to open up in Sydney. Uh, I think as we move beyond this fortress Australian mentality, hopefully um, our cultural institutions will start to open and engage, as will our politicians. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We'll see. And now
0: the the other book you recommend is The Utopia of Rules on Technology, Stupidity and the Secret Joys of Bureaucracy. What an extraordinary title by David Graeber, G-R-A-E-B-E-R. Yeah. I think that this will particularly appeal to the mandarins among our listeners.
4: Yeah. So, I mean, It's clear no one likes bureaucracies, you know, even bureaucrats dislike bureaucracy. Um, So it's a collection of essays that are really readable, humorous, and um, Graeber shows us the violent force that bureaucracies can have on our lives. The violent
0: force that bureaucracies can have, gosh.
4: Yeah. So, I mean, if you've ever applied for permanent residencies elsewhere or applied for a visa coming into Australia, um, beyond the tourist visa, you would know the violence that these forms have on your life. Uh, And it's just a really, um, I think, a great collection of essays that shows us that Bureaucracy really stunts our creativity and imagination, and that's his argument. Um, And as well, uh, yeah, yeah, as well as uh,
0: promoting a heck of a lot else, um, does he acknowledge that?
4: Yeah, so I mean, what he does advocate is the abolition of bureaucracy. This revolution, um, <laughs> we can we can take it with a grain of salt. He is a bit of an anarchist, um, but he did pass away last year. But there, I guess, he does say there's a counter was an anthropologist, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Um, but we do have the secret harbouring of joys when we, you know, finish that form and press submit that we've navigated this complex. Uh, inexplicable, in, inexplicable language to get through this process and, you know, cross mm. our fingers when we press submit that the application will be received and we'll get what we get at the end.
0: Yes, I had a um, lodger once who had to go through that. And I have to say, I do agree. <laughs>
4: she was Scottish <laughs> and I'll
0: never forget it. Uh, look, I'm just watching the time drift away because yeah. I want to go to what we're watching now. And James, you have a movie for us all the mm-hmm. way starring Brian Cranston. Uh, and I think we can... I think we can gather what this one's about. All the way with LBJ. Well,
3: indeed. That was the Democratic Party's 1964 slogan for the election, Johnson's slogan. Um, look, it's a compelling performance by Cranston. I mean, it, it's essentially about the passage of the Civil Rights Bill. It's, it's the year after Kennedy was assassinated. Um, but it's also, it also gives us a glimpse of Johnson's thinking on the Great Society, the war on poverty. Um, you see the administration starting to descend into the mire of Vietnam even more and you see Johnson. I mean, in a particularly, um, you know, there's lots of compelling scenes here. You know, the Democrats basically. I mean, Johnson being told by Senator Richard Russell, you, if you go down this path, you're going to lose the South for the Democratic mm. Party. Uh, and you see him sort of really applying that that Johnson pressure that he was so well known for on on um, Hubert Humphrey. And uh, there's a, there's a marvelous scene where he's driving Hubert Hubert Humphrey along the. The uh, the road into his ranch in Texas along the Pedernales River, and uh, he just turns. He's saying to Humphrey, "You have got to bring the liberal wing of the party along uh, on this on this civil rights bill. We're going to we're going to gut the bill first and take voting rights out of it, and then we'll do voting rights in '65. And I promise you, we'll do it." And he just careers the car off the road, and scares the the, the Jesus out of Humphrey. But Johnson had constructed a road un- just underneath the surface of the river at its lowest point so that he could do this to people that he welcomed to the ranch, scare them, scare (laughs) the wits out of them by thinking he was driving them into the river. (laughs) And there there he offers. Uh, Hubert, the um, vice presidential nomination.
0: Oh, it is an extraordinary... I mean, I think I've seen that. I think that came out a couple of years. It did. Yeah, it did. It's very interesting. And look, Mm. finally, I think probably to you, Jennifer, you're watching Line of Duty on Netflix. When I've got the courage, I watch it. The British police procedural with its brilliant plotting. Um, Um, So what is it that gets you in about that?
4: I think it's just the really... the intricate and the really inventive... Plotting the storylines, and just really clever um, dialogue. Right, there's long stretches where there are three or four of them sitting in the interviewing room, asking questions, and you hear how the unfolding of corruption within the police force um, is uh, perpetrated. And it's just re- it's a gripping suspense based on primarily on dialogue, which is um, quite different to other forms of drama, particularly. Um, U.S. drama, I suppose, and really strong performances, and it, there's real depth in the in the story, and it provides really clever construction that speaks to our times. Mm-hmm. So in, I think in the most recent series um, season, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement kind of features in the storyline mm-hmm. because it affects the representation of police work. So. Yeah.
0: Well, look, we're going to. There is more. We'll put that on our website because um, it's been so rich, uh, your suggestions. But there's more to come. Look, James Curran and Jennifer Sue, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you Thanks so much. much, James Curran from Sydney University. Jennifer uh, Sue, a research fellow at Lowy Institute. Now, just a very quick mention um, before we leave. uh, James Valentine, the great broadcaster's mother, has written in to alert us about uh, Hubert Wilkins. Remember, we had Peter Fitzsimons on, Uh, The Incredible Life of Hubert Wilkins. She reminds us that there was Simon Nash, The Last Explorer, also wrote about him, and Malcolm Andrews in 2011. It had the inspired title, his book, of Hubert Who. She reviewed it many years ago and thought it was terrific. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Duke. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now.